Braves and baseball fans, it's time to take a trip from coast to coast across Major League Baseball. There it goes, a long drive. If it stays fair, home run. One strike away. Sandy into his windup. Here's the pitch. Swung out and missed a perfect game. Fly ball deep left center. Grissom on the run. Yes, yes, yes. Left side, Swanson to first. Braves and baseball talk straight from the diamond. Here's Grant McCauley. Hello again and welcome to another episode of From the Diamond. As always, I'm Grant McCauley and it's time again for a great chat about what's going on with the Braves as we count down to spring training and taking a look at some of the big stories from across Major League Baseball where one of the biggest sagas of any winter in recent or long-term memory finally came to a close as Carlos Correa got a third contract. After all of this, he's going to remain a Minnesota twin. Corey McCartney and I are going to talk all about that. We're also going to have a little retrospective, if you will, over the departure of Luke Jackson and uh, perhaps the end of the night shift in Atlanta, what it meant in the Braves, their postseason lore, the team's history, and the role that those men played in bringing a title to Atlanta in 2021. We'll talk about that. We'll size up shortstop for the Braves. Not a whole lot of moving and shaking going on this week, but could there be over the course of the next month? That is, of course, the question. We'll get into all of that here on From the Diamond, but before we get started, I want to remind you, make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcast. Make sure to follow me on Twitter. I'm at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. You can follow Corey at Corey J. McCartney, and you can follow the show at From the Diamond with an underscore on the end. Over on Instagram, I am at Grant McCauley. The show is at From the Diamond. You can also like us on Facebook. Just search for From the Diamond there, and everything else you need, you can find links and all that helpful stuff at FromTheDiamond.com. Well, Corey, thanks as always for making time. I enjoy this every single week as we get to sit down and kind of talk about what's going on with the Braves. And, of course, take a broader look across the National League East and the rest of baseball. And we've got a little bit of everything here on this particular show. And I figured we'd start with the departure of yet another, I think, beloved Brave would be a good way to put it. I know at times people might not have been quite sure how they felt about Luke Jackson, depending on how many runners were on base (laughs) and how high pressure the situation was. But, you know, the more I got to know Luke and the more we got to see Luke Jackson in his tenure with the Braves and his evolution as a relief pitcher, he ended up carving out a pretty nice little niche for himself and becoming one of the Braves' better relievers a couple of different seasons and coming in and getting some really, really big outs. And now he's going to be a San Francisco Giant. He got two years, $11.5 million guaranteed. Corey, that's a nice payday, third-year option for him. I don't think the Braves were ever going to get into that stratosphere, bringing Luke back, coming off of Tommy John surgery. San Fran, though, a really nice place to land if you're a pitcher. There's been some revitalization going on there. Maybe the Fountain of Youth, I don't know what's going on. But either way, uh, for Luke Jackson, there's a lot, I think, to unpack here, but he found himself a nice payday, a nice new home, and the Braves lose another member of that vaunted night shift. Yeah, you think about, you know, you mentioned Braves fans really not knowing sometimes how to gauge Luke Jackson. You think about even how he arrived, right? You got Tyrell Jenkins, who was the you know organization's minor league pitcher of the year. You know, they end up trading him away to get uh, to get Luke. So he comes in with kind of that expectation of, oh, you traded away, you know, a mm-hmm. guy who had these kind of accolades. And what are you getting in him? I think it took what a Luke a while to find his role, right? Obviously, yeah. they tried him out at closer. They really had no choice but to try him out at closer. Um, then he kind of found that setup role, you know, friendly neighborhood slider man. And uh-huh. I think it all got elevated, obviously, as part of that night shift. And I think he ultimately is going to be looked back as a guy who found his niche, 
and you know performed it admirably and, and was a key part of that bullpen that ended up helping deliver a World Series. Yeah, he absolutely did. And, and the interesting thing is, and I always feel like the different paths that players take. You mentioned he was a kind of a, a high level prospect for the Rangers. They really couldn't find a role for him. He didn't find any success, obviously, in Texas. Got traded over to the Braves. He kept getting on and off of the Braves roster in 2017 and 2018 at a level in which, at least to get back to the majors, you just really don't see this too terribly often. The Braves designated him for assignment or outrighted him off the roster four different times. And the names that were coming on to the Braves roster as he was coming off, and we're talking about Preston Tucker, not Kyle Tucker, the older Tucker brother, that's the one the Braves had. But you had Lucas Sims, Luis Gohara. I mean, these were the names that Luke Jackson was kind of getting bumped for. But as you mentioned, eventually in 2019, he found his way into the closer's role. Not one full year after all of these times on and off of the roster, he was being entrusted with three of the biggest outs you can get in any game because he was the ninth inning guy. And I think he performed pretty admirably because, as you mentioned, the Braves were simply out of options. They really just didn't have anybody else to turn to in that bullpen. They ended up remaking that bullpen in 2019. But uh, Luke Jackson continued to find ways to really, I think, contribute to the Braves outside of the COVID season, which was kind of a lost year. So if you really look at the ups and downs of this guy's career, he just kept showing you that resilience can take you a long way in Major League Baseball. Yeah, and he's a guy. I mean, I'm, I'm sure the same thing with you. I I, I thoroughly enjoyed my conversations with Luke yeah. over the years. I mean, I remember meeting him, you know, his first uh, his first big league camp, and we talked about how every year he kind of picked a country he'd never been to to travel before. Uh-huh. Kind of had a really interesting upbringing. His mom worked at a, in an orphanage in Russia, um, and they kind of got his dad had a job where he was some part of the time in, in England. So they they bounced all over the place, and he was just a really worldly guy. I think you know he he kind of had a baseball never really seemed to be like everything that Luke Jackson was about. It always kind of seemed he was a really, you know, I mean, he's just a really interesting guy. And I think, I think his mindset and the way he kind of looked at things kind of helped out with the way that it took him so long to kind of find out who he was on the baseball field. And um, again, I I go back to this, but I I know that some of those last instances of him in that world series run, things didn't go well. I mean, obviously if he doesn't have his issues, the massic moment uh, in (laughs) in the NLCS doesn't even happen. doesn't happen, but um, certainly he played his role and he was a key contributor to so many moments during that run. He really was. And it does feel like you brought up something really interesting because I feel like we get, very focused on the numbers and the performance and the things we see between the lines. But it did feel like baseball in a lot of ways was just kind of an extension or a part of Luke Jackson. And that really made him, I think, a guy who could connect with a lot of different players and particularly that bullpen group. And we'll talk a little bit more about the night shift in just a moment, but just specifically on Luke, you know, the success that he had on the field, he became very easy to root for because of the way that he had kind of ingrained himself into that team and really endeared himself to his teammates. So some things are a little bit bigger than the game, and some things are kind of parallel, just as important as you look at the success, you measure the success of a player on the field. That is one way to look at it. But if you spend a number of years around somebody, and of course for these guys that are spending every single day around each other, they're seeing their teammates more than they're seeing their family over the course of, what, eight or nine months out of the year, you really can't overstate the importance of having guys like this. I mean, even when he had Tommy John last year, the Braves put him on a plane when they were kind of going through some of their doldrums, and they took him out on a road trip. And that is not the thing you usually do for a rehabbing pitcher for a long-term injury like Tommy John. Yeah, and I think that really speaks to it, right? The fact that they, you know, they had Will Smith moved on from him, and I think that they, you know, and while he's the same, you know, much in the same boat, a guy who kind of had his ups and downs and his, you know, kind of changes in his I guess perception among Braves country with the uh, the ups and downs of what he did on the mound. Once Will Smith was gone, they kind of and Jesse Chavez obviously for an extended period of time too. They didn't have anybody to really 
I, I think, you know, keep that same. I mean, they obviously they had, you know, Matzik and he had his you know, time away and ended up obviously, you know, being lost for the season. AJ Minter was there, but Luke was just so such a key to that culture and that bullpen. And mm-hmm. I think bringing him in um, just I kind of spoke volumes to a guy that's uh, obviously his value uh, was much more besides what he did between the lines. It is. So Luke Jackson on Twitter this week posted a goodbye to Braves country as his deal with the San Francisco Giants became official that two year, eleven and a half million dollar contracts so again. Mm-hmm. A nice payday, particularly when you think about Luke Jackson having to go through Tommy John surgery and get this kind of guarantee on the other side of that. But Luke Jackson said, these past six years have been nothing but magical. Atlanta, I love you from all the boos to Luke. It was a roller coaster. I wouldn't have it any other way. My teammates, the front office, and the coaching staff are nothing but first class. The friendships I've formed are lifelong. Me and my family will be forever grateful for the love and support over the years. From the bottom of my heart, I just want to say thank you. Efficient and punctual. Hashtag your friendly neighborhood slider man and all the messages. Amazing Twitter fam. I love you all as well. So some really great words from Luke Jackson. You can tell that his time in Atlanta, I mean, it it was one in which he went from being just a prospect, just a pitcher, just another guy on the roster to being somebody who was an integral part of a world series championship team, but also not just the growth professionally, but personally, all of those things, it just made him a great all around player. And it's, you know, it's just part of the business that guys move on, go to different cities, sign with different teams and injuries of course can change the trajectory of a lot of different careers but it's going to be pretty easy to pull for Luke Jackson no matter where he signs and where he goes you just kind of like to see these guys find success yeah without question and again you mentioned it everybody kind of has their own little story and I think the fact that you know he was just such a key part of the world series I mean I I would imagine 10 years from now you're going to be have going to Braves alumni events and Luke Jackson's going to be there and he's going to get the same kind of a reaction now, you know, is basically any of those guys that you had back from the the 95 team in terms of, you know, what they meant to that fan base. Yeah, I think so too. And that kind of brings me to a nice little segue here. When you think about the fan base and, and the overall place that some guys carve out that niche in the history of the franchise. Well, the night shift was a group that I think people really latched onto. And regardless of whether you believe what the origin story of that name is, and Luke Jackson has a claim, I think at least to some part, of that name coming up. But regardless, the guys in that group, you know, Matzik, Will Smith, A.J. Minter, and Luke Jackson in particular, the real central guys on that group, you know, it may not be the big three of the Braves from the 1990s with Maddox and Glavin and Smoltz or Smoltz, Glavin, Maddox or whatever order you want to put them in. But these are guys that put in some serious work, got some huge outs, and were integral to the Braves winning the 2021 World Series. So I felt like it'd be a nice time to kind of take a moment and reflect on just how instrumental that group was on that World Series title, because as you mentioned, Luke Jackson's struggles kind of opened the door for Tyler Matzik to have one of the all-time magical innings in the history of the franchise in 151 years. I'll never forget the feeling of being in that ballpark on that night and watching Matzik punch out the side, but Will Smith showed up in a huge way to throw what was a spectacular postseason, all told, not giving up a single run while converting all of his save opportunities. Obviously, A.J. Minter got some huge outs, huge strikeouts were just part and parcel to what he does in the postseason. And then you had Matzik and Luke Jackson as well coming up with those huge moments. So that group, while it wasn't the longest tenured group, they're not together for a decade plus, like those three Cy Young Award winners and those Hall of Famers from the 90s. But, and I tweeted this out earlier this week, you know, you should be telling your kids and your kids' kids about what these guys did to help the Braves win the World Series for the first time in over two and a half decades. Yeah, so I'm actually in the process right now of updating the Tales from the Atlanta Braves dugout book. So I spent some time talking with Tyler Matzik in the last couple of weeks, mm-hmm. and I asked him, you know, about the the origins of the name because I said, you know, obviously there's been a lot of different stories about it. And so he, you know, as you can imagine, 
says he's the one that came up with the name. Mm-hmm. So, I, I, and then Luke obviously has his claim, but he talked to me just about like how tight that group is to this day. You yeah. know, they obviously all text one another, even though, you know, now we're talking about a couple of them now being in different cities, but um, certainly, you know, you think about the numbers and, you know, you had during that, that uh, postseason run, you had, you know, mentor with 12 innings pitched and 18 Ks, Matzik 15 and uh, third innings with 24 Ks, Luke Jackson with eight and two thirds and nine Ks. And of course, as you mentioned, a spotless ERA for uh, Will Smith over uh, six wins and all those saves. So, yeah. I mean, they, you know, they were all obviously, you know, huge, but it did. I mean, I know we put the focus on those four guys, but obviously mm-hmm. it went beyond that too. I mean, Jesse sure. Chavez was yeah. a big part of that group and, you know, even uh, Tomlin and, and on and on, but um, those are the four guys that you're going to throw on a t-shirt. And yeah. those are the ones that, you know, that you're going to be remembering, as you mentioned, for generations to come. Kind of the figureheads of that group, yeah. most certainly. And the guys who were throwing the higher leverage innings towards the end of the game in particular, getting seven, eight, nine, and whoever you yeah. called on, whenever that bullpen door swung open, you just started to feel more and more and more confident. And I think one of the crazy things that maybe makes that story a little bit more surreal or a little bit more just, you know, fantastical October drama, the kind of thing that you really can't script, is the fact that the Braves really had some ups and downs in that bullpen over the course of the season. A.J. Mentor was sent to the minor leagues. Tyler Matzik wasn't necessarily always looking like the Tyler Matzik that we saw in the postseason. I think we all know the roller coaster ride that Will Smith was. And as we talked about with Luke Jackson, he had some highs and lows. And even in that very postseason, Moments that seem like, hey, it might get away from the Braves. Is the bullpen going to be the culprit? Well, if the case was, no, the bullpen was not going to be the culprit. The Braves were going to win it all, and these guys were going to be the ones getting the big outs and slamming the door. Yeah, I mean, they were, they were huge, right? I mean, it's interesting, though, to think about like that. Every one of them kind of had their moments, and yeah. I think you know we all kind of had everyone watching this team, you know, for those months leading up to the postseason wondered if, you know, Will Smith was the guy you needed to have in that closer role. Yeah. And obviously things didn't end up working out for him to the point where we're talking about one of the finest closer performances in postseason history as part of that night shift group. And obviously AJ Mentor went through, I mean, he's had that happen multiple times mm-hmm. to his career where he had to go kind of find himself again at the minor league level to come back. And, you know, every one of them, you know, going through their their little instances of you questioning them and, and coming together, you know, just with one of the the finest runs I think this franchise ever saw. Yeah, and even going into the postseason, just to kind of show you what this group was, what they were all about, we know that Will Smith ended up being traded away to the Houston Astros over the course of the trade deadline this past year. Uh, Well, if you want to look at it a little step further, they had the night shift. They had them all in. They had all four of these guys. Of course, Luke Jackson went down to Tommy John surgery in the spring, but one of the things the Braves did was go out and sign a brand new closer in Kenley Jansen. So that group really didn't have the time to spend, you know, three, four years all doing the same thing in the same roles in the same instance. But they have this moment in time or these moments in time, Corey, that I think Braves fans are going to reflect on and, and look back on extremely fondly because, as they say, flags fly forever. And the night <laughs> shift is a huge reason that that 2021 flag is flying over at Truist Park. Now, uh, talking a little bit more about what the Braves are doing right now, it's not really a big news week, at least at the moment that we sit down and record this. And I realize that there is a, a certain level of risk I am taking by making a statement like that. But just hear me out. The Braves haven't made any particularly noteworthy roster tweaks in this past week. A couple of minor league signings and depth ads as we approach spring training. So, Corey, I guess we throw the question out there. I mean, it's fair to wonder, do we think the Braves are done here with this roster or not? I know Alex Anthopoulos is never really done, but do we expect a lot of moving and shaking to happen in the month leading up to spring training? Because that's where we find ourselves now. 
Yeah, and I think too, you wonder like how aggressive would those moves be, right? Like yeah. I know where there's still talk about Brian Reynolds in the trade market. There's some rumors now that maybe the Rangers are the, the team, one of the mm-hmm. teams that's you know emerging as a as a real threat to get him. Um, you know, certainly Jerks and Profar. You know, if they were to go the, uh, the outfielder route, I mean uh, Elvis Andrews. Yep. There's going to be some competition there, which we'll talk about later. So. I think every almost every move you can think about them making, they're far from the only ones that could potentially, obviously, you know, be making a, a real run at whoever that player is. So I can't see them being overly aggressive. And yeah. I, I thought the the comments from Alex Anthopoulos on our our friend uh, Dave O'Brien's uh, podcast, Seven Fifty Five is real, were interesting. Just how glowingly he talked about Vaughn Grissom at shortstop, and it's it's really making you think like. All right, they're they're ready to go with Vaughn Grissom, and as much as I did not believe that was going to be the case, and I thought a lot of what we heard early on was maybe just, you know, mm-hmm. I don't say lip service, but you know, sure. being cagey about situations, uh, it feels like that's that's where things are headed, and I don't know how aggressive they're really going to be or what really needs to be done uh, aside from just watching how other rosters may shape up and who might be available. Uh, is spring training kind of takes along. Yeah, and you know there's going to be a certain amount of watching how the rosters shape up, what players might get cut loose from other teams, and, and yep. clearly there are a few guys still out there in the free agent market that you expect to sign to find work at some point, uh, whether it's you know this week, next week, or right before spring training, or hey, somebody gets hurt in spring training, and that free agent is out there, and you're able to scoop them up. We've seen that happen for the Braves before in the past, but Putting all that aside and circling Vaughn Grissom's name because, goodness knows, we've talked about him all winter long. I'm with you. I I don't want to say it was just lip service when we started hearing the compliments that were flowing from Ron Washington about, hey, you know, I feel like this kid can do it and giving him a lot of credit for the work that he was putting in over the course of the winter and also the athleticism and the belief that, hey, he was a shortstop in the minor league, so it's not teaching him an all-new position. So this is not Moneyball too. And Ron Washington having to explain how incredibly hard shortstop's going to be to Vaughn Grissom. I mean, he gets what it is to be a shortstop, but at the major league level, coming in and being the guy that walks in after a big player leaves and signs a free agent contract somewhere else, I mean, there's a lot of little nuances and pressures and storylines, of course, that are built into this, but you know, I am with you. I don't feel like at this point you can look at it as anything other than the Braves intending to look at their internal options and give them the opportunity to play. And Vaughn Grissom, I think, is kind of the top of that list just by default because the Braves have given young players the opportunity to come up and sink or swim if they feel that they are ready to contribute at the big league level. So you've got that. We've seen a little bit of Vaughn Grissom at the major league level. Orlando Arcia is also on this team and has, what, four years worth of everyday big league shortstop time with the Milwaukee Brewers. But if I was less than 50-50 about the chances of Vaughn Grissom being the answer at shortstop, I've kind of moved my scale along to about 70-30 that this is probably going to be the route that they're going to go, even if there is an Elvis Andrews, uh, Jose Iglesias, maybe even a, a trade for another shortstop somewhere else, even if those things are all possible. I'm starting to feel at this point like, hey, maybe they do really look at Vaughn Grissom and feel like, We saw enough last year, and he's got potential, and we're ready to see what that potential can be because you can do a lot worse, I think, than Vaughn Grissom out there playing shortstop and batting ninth in your lineup every day. And I know that because I've seen the Braves do a lot worse than that in the past. Yeah, and I go back to remember when we had Mark DeRosa on Battery Power TV, and even he said you know, he he did not think a team that had championship aspirations Mm -hmm. would be rolling into opening day with a rookie rookie as their starting shortstop. But here we are, and – it's, it is interesting to kind of think about those comments about, you know, Anthopolis, you know, talk, relaying what he had heard from Ron Washington, because it's not as though, you know, they were in negotiations with Dansby Swanson and things completely broke down. Someone else swooped in and grabbed him. And then they have to trump up and talk about the guy who's left. 
know, they mm-hmm. were talking. I mean, they're, obviously, these comments were made well before uh, the Swanson ended up signing yeah. with the Cubs. So, and there obviously at that point there were still a lot of shortstops out there if the Braves wanted to, you know, have entered any of the markets to get any of those really big guys. So it's not as though they were left in the lurch and they have to end up talking about that guy that's still remaining. So I, you know, as much as we kind of hemmed and hawed about it about the possibility, you know, I. The Ron Washington track record speaks for itself. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, what he's been able to do with guys. I mean, this way, if he's able to turn Vaughn Grissom into a viable everyday shortstop, uh, you know, one where you're no longer questioning the arm strength, you're no longer questioning the range, uh, at a in a rookie at that on a team with champion uh, sights on a championship. And this could be, uh, you know, another feather in the cap of Washington on that coaching resume. Yeah, and I want to give Wash the amount of credit that it takes because he is kind of like the master Yoda of this infield thing. That's most certain. But you do have to have a certain requisite amount of skills and talent in order for him to elevate those skills the way that he does. And I do think Von Grissom has those. We talked about, I think a week ago, there was a, a thread on Twitter that had a lot of minor league highlights of Grissom playing shortstop. And he kind of, if you haven't seen it, which I, admittedly I did not get to go to a lot of minor league games and and watch Vaughn Grissom every single night. But, you know, you watch him at second base, and you may not immediately see it. Okay, well, everything there that he was doing at second base easily shows me that he could be a big league shortstop. No, you got a certain amount of questions. And Brian Snitker said as much at the winter meetings, hey, I need to see this guy play shortstop. I hear all the reports. Those are all good, but I need to see it. And I do still think, even coming into spring training, there is, of course, the you've got to show us, and we do have to see it before he's going to get the opportunity to get those keys and take that job for a spin over the first four weeks, six weeks, eight weeks, whatever it is, to kind of see if he's ready to indeed play a capable major league shortstop and contribute some things offensively. Because I do think they like his profile as a hitter. He's the selective guy at the plate, and he does have a good approach, but the consistent hard hit contact and those things that kind of eluded him in his first, what, eight weeks or so in the big leagues, You're going to have to see a lot of different things take that step forward so that you can feel comfortable that this is the guy who should have this job. Yeah, I saw him play. I mean, obviously, just one game isn't uh, really indicative of anybody. I I saw him play uh, once in Rome at shortstop and, you know, didn't obviously, you know, had no questions that he looked the part uh, at that level. But certainly, you know, I think you question you know, from some of the, the advanced metrics that we talked about before, you know, I've mentioned to you where the, the arm strength sits and, you know, certainly there could be an aspect of that, of how much effort you put in from a throw at shortstop compared to what you put in a throw from second base and how much yeah. that plays into it. But um, I, I, if they don't make another move going in, just because they go into spring training with this group does not mean Von Grissom is going to be the opening day shortstop. He could not show up enough in spring training and they may feel more comfortable with Orlando RC in that spot, or, you know, somebody else could come along from another organization. Maybe they do end up making a late move for a, you know, a Inglesius or an uh, Andrews or, or who knows, Whoever. but yeah. Um, yeah, but uh, I'm interested to see. I mean, I, I think that's going to be one of the, the most intriguing things as they go to camp, obviously, you know, who's that fifth starter, and the, the progression of Von Grissom at shortstop, those are, you know, I think, the two biggest questions for this team uh, as they head down to Northport. Yeah, they most definitely are. Now, there's some other things going on around Major League Baseball that kind of, I think, brought focus down to another Braves infielder. In fact, the guy that's going to be playing third base for what we imagine to be the next decade in Atlanta, that, of course, is Austin Riley. And this was because of news from the Boston Red Sox as you know, they are going to finally be able to keep one of their homegrown stars agreeing to a decade-long $300 million, $300-plus million extension with Rafael Devers, their third baseman. Now, it's something I think the Red Sox needed. They needed a win like this after watching Xander Bogarts leave and join the Padres this offseason after having to trade away Mookie Betts not too long ago to the L.A. Dodgers, where he immediately signed one of the biggest contracts in baseball history. 
it's a clear win for keeping a long-term peace around there for the Red Sox. But it brought up a little comparison shopping, shall we call it, about the contracts of Austin Riley and Rafael Devers. Because these two guys, amazingly, as you start to kind of pull back some of the layers, they're a little bit more similar than people might have imagined. But the interesting parallels are for two deals that can be seen in a number of different ways. And specifically... Because Devers was in his final year before hitting free agency, Austin Riley still had three arbitration years in front of him, but both of them got big-time paydays. Riley, the biggest in the history of the Braves franchise. Rafael Devers getting his decade and $300-plus million. So he got a bigger payday, but Riley's, what, 25? Devers is 26? And then as you start to look at the production, Corey, it was kind of eerie how similar these two guys really are. And I think, if anything, could show you that, yes, the Braves made a shrewd move in another one of these extensions, but... If you were still somehow underrating Austin Riley and the place that he holds among major league third basemen, particularly young star major league third basemen, guys who are going to be hopefully doing this for a long time, maybe you need to properly rate him at this point. Both will go into this season at age 26 with Riley's as we head into the 2023 season. And you look at the career averages. I mean, Devers has a 124 OPS plus across his career to this point. Riley's at 123. Devers has an 854 OPS Riley's at 846. I, I mean, they're just, you know, so similar and certainly, you know, the money there. I mean, Devers, 11 years, $331 million. Um, Riley, 10 years, $212 million, the largest in con- uh, contract in uh, franchise history. They're both going to be around for a really long time. And it, certainly the way things have progressed uh, in Boston after that, uh, kind of wonder why Raphael Devers decided to agree to that with one year before he hits free agency. But that's a, a completely different story. But, man, I think this does really underscore the immense value the Braves have in a guy who, you know, he didn't have to sign that deal. And if he were to be a year from the uh, free agency, that's probably what you're looking for in terms of what that market value would be for Austin Riley as well. Yeah, and I can look at Rafael Devers and say, hey, if you're comfortable in Boston and somebody's going to come along and offer you that big chunk of money, I mean, he was able to break off a better long-term deal than another guy we're going to talk about in a moment, Carlos Correa, was able to get. And and Correa did make it into free agency. And I'm not saying that that was a cautionary tale because if Devers doesn't have to worry about a a non-clear bill of health on on an ankle or what have you, then that's not a hurdle that he has to clear. But I would say if you were looking to keep a guy around, paying him, what, $32, $33 million a year is a pretty good way to do it. And the Red Sox were finally able to get one of their young guys up, developed, turned into a star, and to keep him around for a while to come. And also in the news for the Red Sox, Corey, as we talked about shortstop a little bit for the Braves, they're going to lose Trevor Story, who was a shortstop before moving to second base when signing with the Red Sox before last season. Now he could be out for the entire 2023 campaign, at least for the first half. Story underwent a UCL brace procedure, which is a Tommy John surgery alternative that is supposed to have a quicker return time. I've heard four months to six months. That seems to be the turnaround that may be the most optimistic for Boston. But this could push them into the market, I think, for a stopgap infielder. Because as we talked about, you know, Xander Bogart's already left in free agency, so they lost their shortstop. Now they're losing their second baseman, who they might could have turned into their shortstop, but now they're not going to be able to utilize him either. So that means if the Braves are indeed interested in any of these shortstops and any short-term solutions for their opening, if there is, in fact, still an opening, they may have a little bit of competition and at least one less option if the Red Sox decide to go shopping here with a month to go before spring training to help deal with the loss of Trevor Story. I mean, obviously, this is a massive blow to a team that probably wasn't going to find its way outside of the cellar in the American League East. I mean, maybe or the Orioles take a step back and yeah. they end up in last place. But so look at, I mean, think about the options that they even have in house. So you got Kike Hernandez, who they 
ideally we'd be playing in center field. Mm-hmm. He can come down and play in the infield for you because he's such a versatile guy. And then you've got a hole in center field. Yep. So I don't know. Maybe they end up going the jerks and profile route, bringing Kiki Hernandez down to play in the infield and then try to find a stopgap to help out in the infield as well. But they have a lot more questions than they did a few days ago. And certainly, you know, watching Xander Bogarts move on is it was a, a massive blow. Uh, I mean, it just seems like a huge miscalculation that they allowed him to walk considering this the place they're in now and thinking, okay, well, because it makes you wonder, did they did they have any idea about this issue with story? during Bogart's free agency, or did this all just happen, you know, after he had already signed with San Diego, but man, they're in a bad spot right now without question. Yeah, they definitely are. And they certainly have more questions than the Braves do, because as you mentioned, if they start kind of moving around the pieces, it's not like the Braves, if they lose shortstop, they don't really have a versatile option like that, a utility knife that they can just say, Hey, we're going to throw this guy in here. But even if you do, and you give that guy the everyday job, you start to take away the versatility or you move him from that position that you already had had him locked into So I do think they're going to have to do something, a little bit of something, maybe a couple of somethings to figure out a way to not only deal with the loss of Bogarts, but also to make up for the loss of story. And then you've had to think about the production that they're losing Mm -hmm. on top of that. I mean, that's going to be the most difficult thing. More than having a warm body or a major league experience at that position, you no longer have two of the stars that were making up your middle infield because one of them got hurt and one of them is signed with another team. Now, when we talk about signing with another team, I don't know if anyone has... um, what is it, embodied the desire to actually be able to do so more than Carlos Correa. Mr. Correa has been a member of, nearly a member of, three different teams in this offseason. At least he agreed to be a member of two other teams before somehow ending up back at the team in which he started his whole journey, and that, of course, is the Minnesota Twins. Now, he's not a New York Met. We now know that, and he's not going to be one anytime soon because the second $300 million deal that Correa had agreed to over the course of this winter fell apart at the finish line due to a physical and questions about his ankle. It turned out Correa's free agent journey is going to lead him right back to where he started in Minnesota, where he signed a long-term deal with acceptable terms for both sides on the health component, which was the huge question mark that was plaguing him throughout the course of this process. The thing is all kinds of nuance, though. It's not 10 guaranteed years. It's six years, $200 million to rejoin the Twins, to stay right where he was, four years of a vesting option based on the health and the plate appearances that he'll make later on in that deal. But this man, who was originally thought to be a giant, then was scooped up by the New York Mets, is right back to being a twin, Corey. And this is one of the craziest free agent sagas I think you could ever even dream up. Only trumped in the last few days by what's been happening happening in Titans Tower when you think about uh, <laughs> yeah. everything happening with Vince McMahon and WWE. But so so many different tentacles to this thing. One of the weirder parts about it, I thought, was the report that the Mets wanted him to undergo a physical every year after the final six years of the deal, and that would determine if they allowed him to opt in for the upcoming season. I would imagine if that would have came to play, the union would have had a fit because that yeah. probably would have – I mean, there probably would have been now a precedent for every other free agent who would be at age or past injury where a team was going to basically hold that over their their feet and say – Hold their hold feet, their feet, to feet the fire, the fire and say, yeah. look, it may. And this has been done already before. These are the, these are the parameters of the deal. So obviously a win for the, the union that he didn't end up going into that. But, um, man, what a, what a strange, you know, just – I mean, what a insane story. I, I can't think of anything in any sport that's been mm-hmm. anywhere close to this when you think about the everything that's happened for him to wind back up with the Twins. But, I mean, even that deal is complicated within its own right. But, uh, obviously, the physical went through. He's back in Minnesota. Uh, and, man, uh, I, I'm – 
I, I don't know if you're a Twins fan. I wonder if you already burned the Correa jersey. Were they already in sale in the Twins team store? I mean, well, <laughs> there's a lot of different things to play here without question. Sure. Well, first of all, stop burning jerseys. That's it's a waste of time and money. Just <laughs> just donate it or put it in a box somewhere. You never know because one day that thing's going to be a throwback and you can wear it in 25 years. And, right. You know, you'll save yourself some money and. Putting all that aside, I mean, as Jeff Passon reported this with the most important caveat to it, which is the physical is done, the deal is done, it's going to happen. Six years, $200 million guaranteed. The vesting options for four more years at $70 million, bringing it to 10 total years. Now, if you go back through the offseason scorecard for Correa, he started out with the Giants 13 years, $350 million, no vesting options with that. Then the Mets had him originally at 12 years, $315 million. Before three weeks of negotiations about the physical scuttled that deal. So this average annual value, if the 10-year deal goes to its full completion, is $27 million per year. Correa, though, is going to make $33.3 million over the first six years, making him the second highest paid shortstop in baseball, next to his would-have-been teammate Francisco Lindor. But from an average annual value, yeah, he would have gotten more years with the Giants than he got with the Minnesota Twins guaranteed. But at this point... If you're able to basically maintain the AAV, still get 10-plus years and play in a place that I guess you're comfortable in and a, a team that's comfortable with you and you no longer have to jump through the flaming hoops of what in the world is going on with these physicals and having to revisit it in six years, I would say he's in a, a pretty decent spot. Now, the 10 years aren't guaranteed, but it looked like the Minnesota Twins, as you kind of alluded to, I believe, a week or two ago, maybe they were just a whole lot more comfortable with Carlos Correa's physical and weren't going to go through everything that these other two clubs went through that ultimately led him to not being a giant and not being a Met. So no opt-outs in this deal. Uh, he's got a full no-trade clause, though. It, it makes you think, with all this stuff going on, is any team ever going to want to offer, you know, try to bring Carlos Correa into the mix on a trade deal? And you, you almost think, too, like when he gets into the latter end of that that contract – is he really going to have any choice but to to go anywhere other than Minnesota? I mean, it's yeah. almost as though, you know, this situation, they've they've locked themselves together like this. Uh, I mean, I don't know that you're ever going to see Carlos Correa wear another uniform. Well, it just I, seems I mean, it just seems so strange. Like if this is an issue now, what's it going to be like? six, seven years from now when sure. he's even older and the production's not going to be where it was. So I don't know, man. It's just it's just seems like such a a obviously one of the wildest free agent sagas we've ever seen play out, but I don't know, man, it, it just seems that they're married now. And this sure. is, uh, th there may not be any end of this relationship. Right. But that's the whole point of going out and signing a long-term deal is you're not really expecting to be traded oh, anytime sure. soon in the first five or six years of a 10 year deal. It would be somewhat surprising. It hasn't happened in the past. Well, yeah. I mean, I think Giancarlo Stanton is probably the most recent example of, yeah, you can sign a long-term contract. It doesn't mean you're going to be there when the thing's over. And we've seen other guys sign five, six, seven-year deals and get traded well before that deal's over. But as I look at this particular arrangement between these two sides, I feel like if Carlos Correa is healthy throughout the course of this, then this might be, as they say, much ado about nothing. There may be ultimately nothing that this ankle stops him from doing, and he ends up being a productive player for the next six years. And then that vesting option kicks in. Then all of a sudden, the Twins are going to get him at four years and $70 million total. That's kind of a nice little bargain toward the back end of the career when, as we always talk about, when players are not as productive. So now you're not looking at the albatross situation if you're this club. You feel like you're still getting him for the six years that should represent his prime as a player into his late 20s and early 30s. This, I think, is a deal that works for the Twins. And if Correa does not get hurt, which is still a very real possibility that he's never really bothered or hampered or sidelined by this ankle injury again, 
this may end up being a more bizarre example of a team being cautious, but maybe to the point where, in the case of the Giants and the Mets, they kind of kept themselves from signing a special player. But I understand that there's a risk involved, so I, I kind of get it from both sides. But we're going to kind of have to find out in time, which may seem like the ultimate cop-out, but time always tells. And as, as they say, father time is undefeated when it comes to athletes and their careers. I do think about it, though. I mean, if he went to the Mets, obviously he would have been on a team that had that was looked like it could challenge for a World Series championship. You know, the could. Giants obviously – have their, you know, this is the team that we've seen put the money in and, and very quickly, you know, find itself into the, uh, I mean, we, you know, the giants are eventually going to get back in there. Minnesota just seems like they're so far off. You know, I think that's, if you I don't know in that play, division, I mean, to be honest with you. I mean, they'd have to make some other savvy moves, but oh, I, sure. I think they could, if they're willing to spend like this, who's to say that the Minnesota twins might not get aggressive and, and do a couple of other deals that might make some sense for him to, if you can win in that central, which you and I talked about what all summer long here on this show, does anybody want to win this division? Does anybody really want to win it more than the other guy? Cause somebody had to take it. It ended up being the guardians, but you thought coming to the year, it's going to be the white Sox. The Twins made a little bit of a push. Obviously, the Guardians won the thing, but I feel like the Twins are kind of a stealth playoff team, but they're not a juggernaut. They're not built the same way, I think, to your point, that a lot of other clubs are built where you feel like, who are the Minnesota Twins going to sign this winner because they are yeah. going to make all the news. They're not going to do that. No, but the, obviously they, they are they are an incomplete team right now, but they sure. have a superstar and they have another one, obviously with Byron Buxton, another guy that you worry about, you know, health injury stuff. On, yeah. So, but they, there's a lot of potential with this team. If you're a Twins fan, I mean, all the draw, all the the feelings that you went through over the last uh, six weeks, uh, at least you get to to you know be happy about the fact that you've got Carlos Correa back in town. Yeah, got about a minute to go here, Corey. Let me ask you this. If you look at the New York Mets offseason, I don't think that losing Carlos Correa undoes all of the other things that they did. It's pretty obvious. They spend an awful lot of money. They have a huge payroll. It's still a record payroll. They're going to be paying big into the luxury tax. I don't think they're going to stop adding to this club when it comes to the trade deadline if they get the opportunity to make a huge move. But I guess maybe they're – off-season scorecard or report card goes from A-plus to, what, B-plus by losing Correa? I mean, it's still a very good team. They still had to fill some holes. They still lost a key player, Jacob deGrom. There's no way around that. But, I mean, the Mets look, at least on paper, every bit as good as they were a year ago. Yeah, and at least they didn't trade Eduardo Escobar while all that Correa stuff right. was going on, yeah. too, right? I mean, that would have been an even bigger issue and an even bigger hole if they would have had to have gone out and, and tried to fix. But this is still a very good team with an extremely good rotation. Uh, just uh, Obviously, the age is a little bit of a, of a question mark with them. But, the, I mean, I think we're set up for this to be the best division in baseball without question with three teams that look like they're going to be a lot of fun to watch. Yeah, they most certainly should be, and we're going to have a lot of fun talking about it uh, for the remainder of the hot stove season, the winter, and of course, as we count down to spring training, which is only about a month away. Corey, as always, I appreciate your time. Look forward to chatting with you again next week. All right, man. That'll wrap us up for this episode of the show. My thanks as always to Corey McCartney for making his time to chat about the Braves and all of baseball with me. And my thanks to you for making From the Diamond part of your baseball podcast regimen. Make sure to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Leave a rating and a review. That helps us grow the show. And make sure you're following along on Twitter. I am at Grant McCauley, G-R-A-N-T-M-C-A-U-L-E-Y. You can also find Corey at Corey J. McCartney. The show is at From the Diamond with an underscore on the end. On Instagram, at Grant McCauley there and at From the Diamond. Make sure you like us on Facebook as well. Just search for From the Diamond. And all the links to all of those things and more is at FromTheDiamond.com. 
We are on the countdown to spring training, only about a month to go. So an exciting time of the year as baseball is nearly back, and we look forward to the Grapefruit League season for the Atlanta Braves. Look forward to talking about the Braves and all of baseball with you again next week. And until then, for Corey McCartney, I'm Grant McCauley. So long, everyone.